Uh, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21, we began um, some time ago a study on the life of Elijah, the prophet. And uh, next couple of weeks, we're going to finish this up. We'll pick it back up here um, on a very interesting chapter uh, in Elijah's life we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, before we do that, though, uh, why don't we open in prayer? Father, we, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. We know your word is true. Lord, in a world of subjectivism and a world that really doesn't believe in absolute truth, God, we stand that your word is true, has always been true, and will be true for all of eternity, for every culture at every time. We stand on the truthfulness of your word, and so please teach us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but the, a lot of times you'll meet somebody, and the more you get to know them, it's almost like there's, there's, there's a side of them that you, you just love. You just, I mean, and then there's maybe a side of them you're not, uh, maybe not the funnest part. Uh, uh, maybe someone's just really kind and nice, but there's that side of them that's a little negative. And you're like, eh, I don't think I like that kind. Or maybe it's a person who's ultra positive. Maybe they don't listen the best. I mean, we, we all run into people, we probably are people, <laughs> where uh, people like a good side, and there's always that side that they're not drawn to so much. Uh, that seems to be the way a lot of people view God. Hey, we like the fact God is good all the time. God is good. We like that. God is loving. But when it comes to the justice and the wrath of God, that's eh, a side of God I'm not too fond of. And so we would rather not even talk about it. Um, but the scriptures don't allow us that. The scriptures give us a full picture of who God is, and God is loving. He is indeed good. He is indeed kind. He's just. Never to compromise his character. And because his is a loving justice, his is a loving wrath because of who he is. This particular account we're going to look at from Elijah's life, we learn a valuable lesson on judgment. And we would be very wise to pay attention to this because this has a lot of relevance to our life. Kind of to catch us up a little bit to underscore um, his message that Elijah wasn't the only faithful prophet at God's disposal. Uh, 1 Kings 20, I encourage you to read that um, this week. Um, Elijah wasn't the only prophet. God sent an unnamed, two actually, two unnamed prophets to deliver his divine message to Ahab, the king of Israel. The first prophet had three messages. For Ahab. In the first, he told this besieged king that the Lord would give him victory over Ben-Hadad, king of the neighboring Aram, and his superior forces. And the reason God said, I'm going to give you victory, is so you will know that I'm the one true God. So it'd be unmistakable. Well, prophet returned with a second message. Ben-Hadad would try to lay waste to Israel again. So the prophet told him, Ahab, you need to be prepared. Prepare your forces. Ahab again followed the Lord's instructions, and sure enough, Ben-Hadad came back for more, and he thought Israel's God was only really a God of the hills, because back in that day, they believed you could have a God of the hills, God of the plains, God of the sun, God of this, God of everything, a plethora, a buffet of gods. And so Ben-Hadad thought, well, maybe this God is just a God of the hills. And so he attacked Israel's God, 
on the plains. The prophet's second message was, be ready, Ahab. I mean, this is what's going to happen. Sure enough. This prompted the prophet's third message, which assured Ahab that he would have victory once more because the Lord wanted to show Ben-Hadad that he was Lord of all, that he was the one true God, and that there would be this holy war where Yahweh would protect his people and in doing so, make himself known as the Lord. And that's the theme, actually, throughout all the kings. It's hard to miss. There is one true God, Yahweh, and he's not going to be messed with. And, and he leads his people to victory over and over again. Now, Ahab followed, this after this third message, this divine strategy, I guess you could say up to a point. Israel drove out the Armenian forces, but instead of relying solely on the Lord's protection, Ahab sought to make himself secure by establishing this treaty with this king who sought to destroy him. Like King Saul, who spared the life of Agog against the Lord's command, Ahab departed from the Lord's counsel and followed his own course. Well, did Ahab grieve and repent? Wouldn't that have been great? Not on your life. Chapter 20, verse 43, So the king of Israel, Ahab, went to his house sullen and vexed. There's an interesting word. And came to Samaria. We're going to see that word again. Now here the Lord's prophet Elijah comes on the scene. As we're going to see, he pronounces this frightening, detailed judgment on the sinful king and wife. And in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, we kind of see their wickedness on display. And so let's follow this through. We see, first of all, this corruption of justice. 1 Kings 21, 1 through 3. I hope you have your Bible. If not, there's some in the pews ahead of you because this is really great to follow through uh, as we walk through this. Verses 1 through 3. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I might have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. I will give you a better vineyard than than in its place. If you like, I will give you the price in it money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Okay, this is the scenario. It's really not hard. The king of Ahab has this property. Right next door to it is Naboth. He owns his vineyard. Ahab looks and says, man, that's, that's some pretty good soil. That's pretty good land. I could really have some kicking gardens there. So he goes to Naboth and says, hey, could, would you sell this to me? And everything we see seems like a fair price. Ahab's coming. Nothing really, he's not trying to rip him off that we notice. <clears throat> what happens is Naboth says, you got to be kidding. I'm sorry, I can't sell it to you. He's kind of adamant, God forbid, because this is my family farm, that type of thing. This is my inheritance. I can't... I can't get rid of this. It's been in the family for years is what we would say. And so while it might be desirable to you, Ahab, while your offer is fair, maybe even generous, I can't do it. This belongs in my family. And maybe the next thing, it would grieve my family. And I want to leave it for my kids. Right? That's fair. That's kind of the context of what's going on. So Ahab approaches him, tries to cut this business deal, and that's the context. Well, verse 4, look what happens when Naboth says no. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed, there's our word again, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away from his his face, and ate no food. This is pretty surprising. This is a king. The word vexed means angry. 
Sullen means bummed out, we would say. He's bummed out and he's angry. And so he goes to bed and won't eat and turns and faces away. <clears throat> this would be like your kids who don't get what they want. They pout, right? Well, maybe not yours. But it's been known to happen to other children, right? They pout. They didn't get what they wanted, and so they're going to stomp off to their room and maybe even throw a toy here or there, and they're pouting. That's what the king of Israel here is doing. He's pouting. We would say that's childish, and you'd be right. It is childish. This is a childish king. Now, Jezebel is going to walk in to this pouting king. Let's follow along. Verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, It's just because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel's wife said, Don't you reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So you got this childish king, he's pouting, throwing his tantrum. This behavior catches his wife's attention. A very wicked wife, there's a warning, marry well, which was probably designed to do. And when she heard his pitiful story, minus, by the way, Naboth's reason, she, notice Ahab didn't put the reasoning involved here, he just presented his side and why he didn't get what he wanted. She decided to take matters into her own hands. And so, verse 7, she said, what's wrong with you? I mean, what's going on, Ahab? Nobody talks to you like this. You're the king. And if you're not going to do it, don't worry. I'll take care of it. And we walk into this conspiracy. Verses 8 through 10. Follow along. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in a city. Think the governing officials. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men, kind of like scoundrels, before him. Let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Now, if you're receiving this, and you're one of these governing officials, you would hope, as a governing official who's meant to protect the people, you would say, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. But this whole system's corrupt, obviously. And so this conspiracy takes place. Now, the question might be, why would Jezebel call a fast? That's kind of a religious ceremony, a spiritual event. Well, if we think about it, the purpose of the fast was to summon the community to repentance and was to identify what God was displeased with. And so when she calls this fast, she has this spiritual facade and says, hey, let's see who God identifies as the sinful person. And so for those in this community who are, who are spiritual and were concerned a little bit, this is her way to deceive them. And so whether it's the corrupt political system or the spiritual community, she's trying to deceive and pull the wool over everybody's eyes because she's going to take care of this. Now, in verse 5 through 7, I thought it was interesting. Six commandments are broken, six of the ten. 
Shall not use the Lord's name in vain. They brought God's name into it. You shall not lie. There's a lying scheme. You shall not steal. Naboth's land. You shall not kill. They take him out. You shall not covet. That's what started it all. And you shall not have no idols before you. Jezebel set herself up as the authority in the place of God. Six commandments broken. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's really going overboard here. And that's what happens. Well, we read in verses 11 through 13 this theft that takes place. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth, the head of the, uh, head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in, sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones, which was obviously the repercussions of cursing God and the king. And so this conspiracy takes place, and a sad testimony to Ahab and Jezebel's legacy of moral decline, these nobles cooperated, these false witnesses lied, and Naboth was murdered. Second Kings 9 adds something in, in, interesting as well. It wasn't just Ahab, they also murdered his sons, because they were the ones who were to inherit the land. So they take them all out. Ahab's like, oh, what a shame. I'm sure he's like, what a shame that they lost their life. Oh, what a bummer. They were good people. I'll buy their land. You can kind of almost see this taking shape as Jezebel's plan comes out. And so Ahab's consent turns a blind eye, really, to Jezebel's actions. Really made him just as guilty. But Ahab and Jezebel overlooked one obstacle. God. <laughs> Yahweh, the one true God. He wasn't going to turn a blind eye to this. And he knows and he cares for the poor and he cares for the needy and he upholds justice. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Now, as I read that, I, I kind of went back on some other places where it refers to Elijah because a lot of times the text refers to Elijah. Then there's times it refers to Elijah the Tishbite. And when it refers to Elijah the Tishbite, watch out. It's like a middle name almost. I mean, because the other encounters, when it's Elijah the Tishbite, there's a smackdown coming. And so here comes Elijah the Tishbite. It's almost like God's giving Ahab and Jezebel a chance, and then he said, that's enough. I'm sending Elijah the Tishbite. Let's see what happens. Because what happens here is this retribution of the Lord. God's been tracking this fiasco, and he's had enough. Now, I use the word retribution, and I think it's important um, I define it because I used it because it covered a big area of things going on here. It's a punishment inflicted on someone as vengeance or wrong. Someone who was seeking to hurt other people, someone who was wrong in the eyes of God, and there's retribution. There's divine punishment. It's the retribution of the Lord. And so God summons Elijah, verse 18 through 19. He says to Elijah, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. Now it's going to get kind of graphic here. And frightening. Ahab 
had heard up to this point, thus saith Jezebel. But now, she's, now he's about to hear, thus saith the Lord. The one true God's stepping in. And it's going to be a different dynamic from here on out. Now dogs in ancient times, in many places, they lived off the refuse of society. So this is a sign that Ahab, in a sense, would die as one cast out by both God and man. I mean, this judgment is certain and it's sure, and God never misses evil. He never misses injustice. Now I don't know what you're facing or maybe how unfairly you were treated. I do know this, God has seen every injustice done and nothing will get by him. Why hasn't he done anything up to this point? We'll never know the reasons, but be assured it will not get by God. Evil is evil. But you know, if you think about it, some evil you don't necessarily pre-plan. I mean, it's in a moment maybe of anger you do something. Um, and, and it's evil, it's wrong. But in this case, this is pre-planned. This is a whole plan playing itself out before us. And verse 20 uses a phrase, very interesting. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Ahab knows what he's his enemy. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Another way to look at that is to say, you just don't care about the things of God. I mean, you, you, you've gone all out towards evil, Ahab. You sold yourself. You didn't care. And once this happens, once you don't care about the things of God, there's a slippery slope that's going to lead to God's judgment. Or as a child of God, God's discipline. And both are certain. Be assured of that. Now also in verse 23, note the judgment upon Jezebel. And of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Ouch. This is harsh. I mean, as I said, it's kind of graphic. But when your attitudes and actions are, in the case of Jezebel, I don't care if God sees, I don't care if God notices, I'm just going to do evil. If there's no fear of God, there's no restraining influence, boy, there's judgment that awaits. Verse 25 is a good lesson. If you hang out with people who don't fear God, who prefer evil, who incite evil, they'll incite it in you. Verse 25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. In other words, encouraged him in his evil. You don't want to hang around people who encourage you in disobedience to God. That would not be a good friend. And so, as I said earlier, be careful who you pick, not only as a spouse, but as your friends. That's, there's one of, one of many lessons here. Verse 21 through 22, we see Ahab, his wife, and his descendants, they wouldn't even have a decent burial. And the threat to Ahab's family is one of total annihilation. The name and memory of Ahab was to be removed root and branch from Israel, and his family would die in such a way that it would be clear to the nation that this whole family had been rejected by God. They'd be treated as refuse. And all that waited for them, and what's Elijah telling them, all that awaits you is fearful judgment. But Ahab had chosen this path. It was his choice. But why does God delay his wrath? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's so much evil and wickedness. We're like, man, how come God just doesn't take them out now? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 is one reason Scripture gives us. 
We read this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient. And at times he delays his wrath, waiting for a person to repent. His grace is waiting for an excuse, in a sense, to withhold judgment. But verse 27 It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay about in sackcloth and went about despondently. Unlike his sullen response to judgment pronounced on him by the unnamed prophet back in chapter 20, this time it seems, at least to a degree, Ahab is moved, maybe even repents. He humbles himself before the Lord. The problem is now it's too late. The Lord's judgment was irrevocable. However, the Lord always responds to humble repentance, and you could say God even extended Ahab somewhat of a grace. You read that in the um, chapter ahead. Then we get to this fulfillment of the judgment. Up to this point, it's been prophecy. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Now the Lord, of course, is true to his word. In 1 Kings 22, another chapter would be really helpful to read in light of this, Ahab decided to go to war against the king of Aram spurred on by these lying prophets of his, through deceitful attempts to hide, he failed to hide from God. And what we learn is he's all decked out and he's got his shields and he's got his armor on and there's like this one spot that makes him vulnerable. It's not a big spot. It's probably just one spot in his armor. And a stray arrow, a random arrow, happens to find its way into that spot. And that's it for Ahab. He dies. And we're told in 1 Kings 22, verse 34 to 38, he bled to death in his chariot. And when the chariot was taken to be washed, guess who was there to lick up the blood? The dogs, just like it was prophesied. Judgment was certain. It was sure God wasn't messing around. Now his son Isaiah would die next, 2 Kings 1. His brother, Joram, the other son, would succeed him and be the next to die. And Joram was cast into a field. Guess which field? <laughs> wasn't just any field. It's the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. 2 Kings 9, 22-26 tells us that. Well, the judgment goes on. It's Jezebel's turn. Several court officials, they toss her out a window in which she'd been looking out of. Jehu tells these officials, get rid of her. They throw her out, and her death was as brutal as her life. Needless to say, the prophecy had come to pass. Let me read it, just so you're aware of the certainty of it. 2 Kings 9, verse 33 to 37. This is probably PG-13. Jehu says, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When, it, when he came in, ate and drank, he said, see now, this is cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned, told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. 
and the corpses of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, this is Jezebel, man alive. <laughs> That's judgment. And it was certain. She had lived total rebellion against God, totally opposed to the things of God. And so that's how she died, facing judgment from God, which is certain. Finally, Jehu slaughtered every relative of Ahab, as well as his chief men, friends, and priests, just like it was prophesied. Ahab's house was utterly destroyed. You see, what's going on here is what you say to your kids when they get out of control and they keep raising the volume in your home and, and they're kind of at the point now where they're beyond uh, normal behavior. You say, that's enough. That's enough. That's what God's saying. So I've had enough of this wickedness. I've had enough of this rebellion. I've had enough of this disobedience. I'm a just God I'm not going to be messed around with. And we see judgment. It's a side of God we'd rather not discuss. But the scriptures make it clear God is a just God and he will judge sin. Which leads some important lessons. One overarching theme of this incident in 1 Kings 21 is summed up by this commentator, Ayin Provan. He says, abandonment of God inevitably leads to abandonment of righteousness. We see the reality of this as 1 Kings 21 in this society given over to idol worship and covetousness, and I would say we see that in any society. It leads to false testimony, murder, and theft, and ultimately leads to judgment. Three lessons. There's an end to God's patience, and no one knows when it is. No, one's know, no one knows when it will come. That's why Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That would be a big mistake. Because there's an end to God's patience and no one knows when it will come. Jeremiah 18, 17, 7 through 10, God wants to bless his people, we're told. But when people persist in sin, here's what Jeremiah says, he thinks better of the good he promised. God loves to show mercy. God desires to show mercy. But he will judge because he's just. His justice demands judgment. The second lesson, God keeps his word and no one can stop it. The Lord is patient with us, but he will not let us persist in sin. Do not be deceived, Galatians tells us. God is not mocked. No one will negotiate with God. Your sin, unless confessed and call upon Jesus to save you, you will bear disastrous results, and they'll be because you chose that. Eternally, child is, uh, eternally as a child of God, you're safe. You're secure. However, let me be really, really clear and warn you. God will discipline you and it'll hurt. And it may affect your family. I mean, you never sin unto yourself. It always affects other people. If you cheat on your wife, it affects your wife. It affects your children. If you lie to somebody, it affects that person. It affects that relationship. I mean, your sin, God won't ignore. He will discipline you. If you remember in Corinthians... Paul says to the church, some of you have played around with communion and you've not taken it seriously. That's why some of you died. I mean, that's pretty, pretty serious stuff. I mean, God's just and he won't mess around with it. And being a child of God doesn't mean God's not going to deal with your sin. He's serious about it. God is, is grieved by our sin. So do not persist in it. He will discipline you. And it will hurt. And it will hurt. 
Second lesson, God keeps his word. No one can stop it. And the third one, God does acknowledge a humble person, a humble, contrite heart. You may be sitting here and saying, I have blown it big time, and right now I'm deeply convicted. You might say, I've been under God's discipline, and he's been right to do so. The good news is God gives grace to the humble, we're told. And your repentance and your humility in coming before God, he sees that too. And we're told and promised he gives grace to the humble. Elijah was a humble man. God gave grace to him. Ahab even humbled himself to a really small degree, and God even gave him a, a, a moment of grace. The question is, will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, James says? Will you do that? Because I said, there's a, there's a time where God says, just like a parent, that's enough. And if we take these lessons to heart, we're never going to have to hear God say to us, that's enough. That's the beauty of the passage. If we'll humbly bow before him and repent, that's something we won't have to worry about. So throw yourself on the mercy court of God. Say to him, God, I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your grace. I confess my sin. Really the only right response to the lessons here. And some of you are confronted with the reality you've played with sin. You've been careless, carefree in your rebellion against God. This morning I call you to repentance. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so you can experience forgiveness and a new start. And some of you have never come to Christ. You've never received forgiveness and deliverance from judgment. I invite you to this morning because without Christ, all that awaits you is fearful expectation of judgment. And that judgment we, we know eternally is hell. Only one response, there's only one escape, it's in Jesus Christ. And I clearly invite you to come to Christ for salvation and deliverance because only he can save. Without Christ, there is only fear. With Christ, there's hope. And there's certainty of heaven. It's a beautiful promises in Scripture. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the hope of the gospel. Holds out to us. I want to just allow you some time right where you're at of repentance. Only you really know, you and God know where you're at. And so it's only right for you to do business with him. You might need to repent. Throw yourself on the mercy seat of God. Maybe you're unsaved. You've never came to Christ. And right now, you realize if you were to die, you'd face God's judgment. This is a great opportunity. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's the exhortation of the Spirit this morning. Let me allow you some time. And, and after some time of quiet, I'll close this up in prayer. Lord, we are still, and we know that you are God. 
And while we might not like to hear the message of 1 Kings 21 about your judgment, we do acknowledge the certainty of it. And Lord, I shudder to think that anybody would leave here without humbling themselves under your mighty hand. I shudder to think, God, that some people would choose to continue to rebel against you and walk away from you. But Lord, there's another part of me that would truly celebrate the grace that you'd pour out upon repentant and humble hearts in these moments. And I know that's your desire. And so God, meet each person here. Lord, for those who persisted in sin right now who are bowing in true repentance and humility, God, pour out your grace on them, your assurance of forgiveness. But yet, Lord, help them to carry the caution in their heart. Lord, that you see everything in their life and all of our lives. And Lord, for those who've never come to faith and maybe in these moments of prayer have trusted you as Savior, Assure the redeemed and convict those, God, who haven't. That they would leave knowing the certainty, the consequences of them choosing to reject you. Move in their heart, Holy Spirit of God. I'm grateful, God, this time and work of your Spirit isn't dependent upon any demonstration of man or our cleverness, but a demonstration of your Spirit's power. So please work, Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.